The Indian government has been clamping down on press freedoms for some time now. We essentially sort of snuck in as tourists and we were shooting extremely quickly and trying to kind of get in and get out well and also make sure that we weren't putting the people that we were speaking to at risk. Yeah, it was a bit of a hair-raising trip <laughs> overall. That was Isabel Young. She won a 2021 DuPont Award for Vice on Showtime. Her story, India Burning, is a fearless investigation that tackled the ongoing rise of nationalism in India and the threat of Islamophobia there. Welcome to another episode of On Assignment. I'm Abby Wright, director of the Prizes Department at Columbia Journalism School. And I am joined, as always, by my friend and colleague, Lisa R. Cohen. She runs the DuPont Columbia Awards. Lisa, how are things? Things are busy. Uh, the students are all back, and we're deep in the thick of the semester. And we are in the middle of judging for the 2022 DuPonts. So there's just... So much inspiring reporting, and today we're going to talk about a 2021 winner that exemplifies what DuPont is all about. Um, this story today models the best of investigative reporting, a complex story that's in a part of the world that's hidden from view, and the reporter, Isabel Young, physically goes there, and that in itself is no mean feat, but she also brings back hard evidence that holds the powerful accountable. Lisa, you interviewed Isabel in December of 2020 to tell her that the great news that she had won a DuPont and to talk to her about this work. Is that right? That's right. Uh, she joined me from her home in London in December to talk about this winning segment. And it actually aired in April of 2020. And that was at a time when massive protests erupted across India over the passage of something called the Citizens Amendment Act or the CAA which is a law that helps to exclude Muslims from applying for citizenship. What was happening in India really reflects political trends that we're seeing all over the world, rising nationalism, polarized political constituencies, and misinformation. So it's within that context that this powerful reporting translated this political issue and its effects on actual people. Isabel, the producers, and a team of local fixers brought cameras into areas with little access for foreign press, like the site of a detention camp being constructed in the northeastern Indian state of Assam. And she went out there and she really got the goods. There's this brilliant example. It doesn't translate well to an audio clip because it has subtitles, so I'll just mention it here. Prime Minister Narendra Modi is giving this very passionate speech. He's exhorting his followers. He says, critics are angry about Muslim detention camps, but there are no detention camps for Muslims. It's all a lie. And then the camera cuts to Isabel standing in front of this sign saying, this way to the detention camp. Plus, she landed a very terse interview with a ruling BJP party member in the Indian parliament. And she pushed back hard against his hate speech. You'll hear a little clip of it later in the episode. That interview sparked a lot of buzz within the Indian and international press. You guys talked about what it was like to report this difficult story working as an international journalist and why audiences should care about what happens far from their own homes. So without further ado, here is an edited conversation between myself and DuPont award-winning journalist Isabel Young. And it starts with a question I often tell journalists might sound rudimentary, but it is, in fact, a really great question to focus an interview subject, especially when the risks were as great as they were for Isabel. 
Why is this story so important? I think this story is important because we've seen a real increase in Islamophobia, frankly, um, across the world. And that is really playing out in India. Um, you know, this increased discrimination towards Muslim individuals, which make up a huge proportion. I think it's around 14% of the population. That's 200 million people. Well, so where did the idea come from and how did you come to do this story? You know, sadly, I think that discrimination towards Muslims and Islamophobia in general is not really a new concept and it has been in India kind of heating up over the last few years, um, especially since the Prime Minister Narendra Modi kind of came to power and, and in his second term as well since 2014, it's really kind of ramped up. So, you know, it's something that we've been keeping our eye on. You know, I previously had covered um, persecution of Muslims in China towards the Uyghurs and to other um, minority groups across the across the whole of Asia, really. And then the um, there were these mass protests that broke out in, in December of 2019. Um, and so, you know, as this was ramping up, we'd kind of been working on this in the background and then decided to, you know, really go there and to try and get to the bottom of whether there was something broken within the system um, that was specifically targeting Muslims um, and what it really meant for people on the ground as well. So I know this is a story that's been ongoing for some time, but I think American audiences are not as familiar with it. So can you just give us a thumbnail sketch of what the CAA is and what uh, the National Registry is? Yeah, so the Citizenship Amendment Act was passed in um, December um, 2019. On the face of it, it doesn't look so horrific, but if you you know you delve into it, you see that essentially it kind of fast tracks um, citizenship for people searching to apply for citizenship in India for everyone, Sikhs, Hindus, um, Jains, Buddhists, Christians, everyone except Muslims. Um, and so this essentially means that it is increasingly difficult for Muslims to get citizenship there. And that kind of combined with other laws that um, the Modi government has been pushing through quite quietly over the last few years um, is just kind of it grows to be quite a um, to paint quite a discriminatory picture towards um, Indian Muslims. India is, you know, one of the biggest democracies in the world, and it's also known to have a secular constitution. Um, and supposedly, you know, they're an equal for everyone who who lives there. For those Muslim Indians who've been in India for generations, why is it so hard for them to prove that they belong in India? Essentially, it would require people to provide all the paperwork and everything to prove that, you know, you have been here for generations and um, which, you know, on the face of it isn't too bad. But you've got to remember that so much of the of India's population, particularly among the poor, are illiterate. Um, it's extremely hard to get hold of all that paperwork, particularly Muslim women who are, um, you know, often left off paperwork anyway, are finding it increasingly difficult to actually prove that they are Indian citizens. And what's the current status of the, the CAA? the mentions of it have sort of decreased recently. I think that, you know, there has been a lot of international pushback. Um, sadly, we have seen that Muslim individuals since COVID have been largely blamed for starting the pandemic in India and spreading it in India. Um, you know, violence towards Muslims has not decreased at all. Um, and so I think it's, it's still a long road ahead for um, Muslim Indians. We met Dr. Subramanian Swami, a top leader of the ruling BJP party at his home in New Delhi. We know where the Muslim population is large, there's always trouble because the Islamic 
ideology says so. And you're saying that wherever Muslims live, that's If Muslims become more than 30%, that country is in danger. That sounds like hatred. That sounds no. like <laughs> language of hatred. It's easy to say hatred. I'm being kind to them by not letting them come to India. This interview with Dr. Swamy, who he makes a very clear no apology uh, case against the rights of Muslims. How did you get him to sit down with you? He was actually he, not the hardest person to sit down with. You know, we, we, were, we told him what the story was. He, this is something that he is quite passionate about, that he, you know, he's defended his, um, his position pretty strongly. And so when we told him what we were talking about and we wanted to hear the government's perspective, he was actually pretty open to um, sitting down with us. Article 14 of the Indian Constitution guarantees the right to equality, as you know, yeah. for all persons living in India. I can tell you that's a misinterpretation of Article 14. Article 14 guarantees equality of equals. I'll give you an example. Are all people not equal? All people are not equal. Muslims do not deserve equal rights to apply for There's no such thing as equal rights. They're not in an equal category. It was after the interview aired, though, that he had a lot of pushback. Um, he claims that we misrepresented him in the interviews. He has threatened to sue various publications that have covered the interview since. Um, it got a, the interview itself got a lot of pickup. Um, uh, the Prime Minister Imran Khan in Pakistan um, was sharing it and tweeting it, which um, angered the uh, BJP, the ruling go um, Indian government, quite a lot. Um, so there's been a lot of pushback since, and I think he's kind of um, rolled back some of his words and claims that he was misquoted. But I mean, I 100% stand by what he said and, and the way we represented him. Tell me a little bit about some of the interviews that were harder to get. Well, I, I actually don't mean in India per se. I mean, we, you know, we were seeking um, interviews with more senior government individuals as well, um, which we would turn down for, I think. Um, I think by the time we were covering this, um, as, as some people in the BJP had potentially realised that, you know, it wasn't um, a great look internationally um, for India. The, you know, these images of um, riots across India and protests across India were getting out, that um, rumours of, of um, Indian Muslims being targeted were getting out. And so I don't think that the Home Office, for example, or... Narendra Modi himself were too keen to sit down with us. <laughs> yeah. Did you get any response from him? Uh, no, we did not. So we've just reached the first detention center that they started building. Until just a few months ago, this area was all farmland. And now suddenly hundreds of workers have descended on this spot and started building these massive watchtowers double walls and huge, huge facilities inside. So um, can you talk a little bit about how you got access to the construction site where the detention camp is being built? Yeah, so, um, you know, the state of Assam was difficult to get access to itself. Um, it's kind of blocked off to foreigners, foreign press at the moment, um, because they just don't want it being covered. You know, the Indian government has been clamping down on press freedoms for some time now um, and increasingly going, moving towards a more authoritarian um, status. So, you know, it, it was more of a logistical issue in terms of making sure that we weren't picked up by the intelligence services. We essentially sort of snuck in as tourists and I, it was just a very small crew that I went with, um, with some very brave locals who were willing to kind of show me 
um, the site and we were shooting extremely quickly and trying to kind of get in and get out um, and talk to people and also make sure that we weren't putting the people that we were speaking to at risk. Um, so, yeah, it was a bit of a hair-raising um, trip overall. 22-year-old Razul is a Muslim construction worker who's been at this site for the last year and a half. Working here is hard for Razul. He tells me his own mother was left off the citizenship list. At what point did you realize what it was that you're building? When you talk to the young man who was actually building the detention camp, he's one of the construction workers, he's Muslim, um, he may very well see his own family end up in a, a camp like this. How do, how do you find him and how did you get him to talk to you? We'd been working with an Indian contact who is from Assam um, for the previous few weeks prior to going there. Um, and he had been sort of looking around for people and talking with, to people for us. Um, and then I'd spoken to um, the 22-year-old Muslim man who was working on this construction site before we got there. Um, and he seemed like a, a good character. It's, you know, seemed, we checked out his um, his private, his home situation. You know, his mother was um, currently in a very precarious situation with her citizenship. She, she was left off the registry list. Um, so, yeah, and he was, you know, he was willing to talk to us, which is um, step one, right? Um, so we, you know, we met up with him as he was working there on the site. And then he took us back to meet his family. Um, comes from an extremely, extremely poor background. Um, his family really literally live in a, in a tent. Um, they're nomadic. They live on, um, on the sand and very next to the coast. It was heart-wrenching to see, you know, the, the fear that his mother and so much of his family were having to go through at that time. And what's their situation for someone who hasn't seen the story? Can you just tell me what she's up against? What might happen? Yeah, so, I mean, because she's been left off the registry list, which um, the government implemented um, in Assam, it means that she has to prove her citizenship. Um, and the only way she's able to do that is to hire a lawyer and to pay a lot of money that she does not have at all because, you know, she's nomadic and she, they literally live day by day. Um, and to try and prove that she has been there for generations. Um, but, you know, she she's completely illiterate. She doesn't have her papers. Um, she the, actually, the area that she lives in is actually floods every year. So keeping hold of any kind of papers or any kind of documentation is almost impossible. Um, and also she is up against a system that, you know, one thing we were able to do is talk to um, various judges from the foreigner tribunals, which these individuals then have to go to to sit in front of and they're basically judged on whether or not they are foreigners or um, Indians. And we were able to talk to these judges and one of them, a, f a couple of them, but one that we featured in the film told us that, you know, they are treated better and able to keep their jobs if they do deem Muslims as foreigners. So they're up against a system that already feels somewhat rigged. Um, and it, it's an extremely difficult battle for her. Razul has no choice but to earn the money to help his mother prove her citizenship, a process that means providing documents dating back decades. Something that's... How is she funding her, her search? 
Well, her son, um, who we spoke to, is essentially working for about, I think he earns about $2 a day, really not much at all, to work in this construction site, which happens to be a construction site for a detention centre that is being built for the explicit purpose of housing these newly deemed foreigners. Um, So it's a really cruel, ironic twist um, in which the only way um, they can fund um, her mother's legal matters is to um, for her son to help build uh, these detention centres. So this is a question that journalism students often struggle with and ask about, and the answer is very unclear, is that when you're reporting on people who are um, victims or who are at risk, like this family is, how do you feel about what may be the repercussions of them talking to you? Is there a concern about, you know, there being some kind of backlash? And what do you do about that? Yeah, um, I mean, the first step, I think, is to ensure that whoever we're talking to knows who we are and what our intentions are and, um, you know, what we're there to do. So essentially, we are journalists. We we aren't able to help or hinder her case, hopefully, in any way at all. Um, and we just want to hear her story. And then I guess, and then it's sort of on a case by case basis, depending on what the specific situation and circumstances are. You know, there's been so many times that we have um, agreed to do interviews with hidden identities, um, and there's been cases where we've just used the voice there's been cases where I haven't mentioned or even filmed anyone um, but just use them as uh, as evidence in the case of this woman you know she wasn't she wasn't concerned about talking to us necessarily once she realized who we were and we weren't there to take her away um, she was just terrified of the situation she was in and not knowing whether or not she was gonna she was gonna leave but she was also at that situation where she was so desperate to prove and to tell anyone who would listen to her that she is an Indian and has been there for generations, that she was actually willing to to share her story. Yeah, it's always just this incredible tension between wanting to highlight and, and shed light, expose people who are vulnerable, people who are facing terrible situations and conditions, and then on the other hand, not wanting to do any inadvertent harm as collateral. Yeah. I mean, it's a it's a conversation I have the whole whole time. I'm having it today on a different story, and it's sometimes a really really fine balance. And you really desperately want to get the story out, but you also know that um, you know individuals are sometimes really literally risking their lives to tell these stories, um, and that has to be our priority. I'm wondering if you can talk a little bit about the role of fixers in the work that you did in this story and, um, you know, how that works, how you find them, how the, what kind of work they do for you. I think a lot of people don't understand that. Yeah, I mean, fixers are the most important people on any kind of international shoot that I'm doing. You know, they often act as translators, as cultural interpreters, as um, security personnel, as just... Um, you know, scouters, they do a lot of the journalism and they are, um, you know, they're the ones that are really putting their lives at risk because at the end of the day, once you go in there and you work with them and they help you get the story, they're the ones that have to stay there. They're the ones that um, have to face the consequences of whatever story you put out. You know, you're putting a lot of trust in them just to go over there and, and trust their instincts on things, but they are putting so much trust in you to get the story right. 
And also, um, in this story in particular, you had you had people on the ground there that didn't want to have they didn't want to get credit for the story, right? Yeah, there were there were several people that we worked with who um, agreed to help us, but uh, only on the condition that their names wouldn't be mentioned. So they don't get any credit. They don't get any credit. They are the they are the silent helpers. Yeah. Do you feel, and I think journalists in this country feel it, but I don't know what it's like for international journalists who deal with risky subjects all the time. Do you, does it seem as though journalism or journalists are more at risk recently than they have been? For sure, yeah. Um, I think we're feeling that all over the world. Um, you know, we're seeing, we're seeing journalists increasingly being targeted everywhere from China to Myanmar to Turkey to Syria to Brazil to Mexico all these places where journalists are increasingly at risk for doing their job Um, and I would also say that there has never been a more important time to do our job because disinformation is rife Um, social media is enabling us to spread that disinformation so so easily I think that in the US especially we've seen this frenzy around what President Trump has been saying what his policies might mean, um, you know, obsessing over every single tweet. And I think that um, international, we, we've sometimes, you know, lost hold of what is going on across the world. Um, and we've seen this year that, you know, what happens on the polar opposite side of the world really does have very, very real impacts close to home. Yeah, I mean, I was going to ask as an international journalist, what is the challenge in general of reporting these kinds of stories? Is it feel as though people don't want to listen? Yeah, um, <laughs> that's, always, that's always the battle. Um, yeah, it's, yeah, it has been a real battle, especially over the last four years, where understandably the situation has been so difficult and tense to get our heads around just in America um, as to what's going on, let alone what is happening in a foreign land with, you know, alien concepts, alien culture, alien people. I'm sometimes heartwarmed and sometimes I'm frustrated. Um, sometimes I'm reminded that, you know, the power of storytelling can be so amazing and that people really do care and people can empathize with cultures beyond their own. Um, and then sometimes, you know, you see the frenzy of, uh, of social media and what's going on in America and then uh, you get really frustrated. <laughs> Why should people care in this country? Why should people care about the stories that you're doing? Um, I think firstly, you know, there's a responsibility to not be blind and close our eyes to what is going on in other parts of the world. Um, And secondly, I think that the world is smaller than we realise. It's connected in more ways than we think. Um, You know, we've literally seen that with the COVID pandemic spreading across the world, which started in China, which a lot of people did not care about when it started in December, January um, and then as soon as it spreads to America, suddenly people care. So I think that just being aware of these things elsewhere in the world, um, you know, is, is hugely helpful. We, we are such a connected world and we have so many opportunities to understand and reach out across the world um, where the same issues play into each other again and again. And, you know, we have such an incredible ability to empathise and understand other parts of the world. And I think it's just such a shame to to cry ignorance. Can you tell me what it means to win a DuPont? What does it do for a journalist? 
I think it's a confidence boost more than anything. It's really, um, it's really nice to have your work recognized and it's really nice to um, know that people are watching and, and hopefully that it helps with awareness and it, it boosts awareness to, um, to you know, the stories that we're trying to tell. And I know that it'll mean a lot to the rest of the team that I'm working with who just worked um, all hours of the day and just really put everything into it. So I'm really, really chuffed for, for them. You're really chuffed, did you say? Sorry, that was such an English expression. <laughs> I'm really chuffed. I've been spending too long in England right now. That's one of the downsides of uh, COVID. I haven't been in the US too much. Chuffed means like stoked or something like that. Really stoked, yeah. <laughs> And finally, let me ask you the question we ask everyone. We are a journalism school and um, we always ask our guests what advice they have for young journalists out there today, whether it's pra practical or philosophical or a little bit of both. I mean, first I would say just figure out what it is you want to be covering. Um, you know, everyone gets into journalism because they care about stories but there are some stories that you care a lot more about and it's a kind of it can be a really thankless job sometimes you know it's a lot of work um it's not very glamorous and you spend a lot of your time doing it and obsessing over it so figure out what those stories are that you really really care enough about um and then just uh you know speak to everyone you can really do all the fact checking you can um and triple the triple and triple check things because this is a time that you do not want to be getting anything wrong. Thank you so much to Isabel Young for talking with us. Great advice there at the end. And even though I spoke to her a year ago for this conversation, this is still and it is never a good time to get anything wrong. I did check in with her this week for any updates, and she said while she couldn't say much about the particular family that she interviewed in this story, she's had a hard time reaching them, but the status of the CAA, the Citizenship Amendment Act, was about the same, and sadly that violence against Muslims continues. You can watch the Vice India Burning story, and we really recommend that you do. It packs a tremendous amount of deep reporting into just under 15 minutes. That's it for On Assignment this month. This episode, like all our episodes, was brought to you with the support of the Jesse Ball DuPont Fund and Columbia Journalism School. It was produced by J-School grad, Emily Pizacreta. Our sound engineer was AJ Mangone, and we also had assistance from our program administrator, Melanie Marich. And we'd like to welcome our three new DuPont fellows who helped us out on this episode. They are Jaden Edison, Emily Russell, and Evan Solis. Our music is by Dylan Nowick. Follow us on Twitter at Columbia Journ. Until next time. <laughs>